0: I'm Alex Wong and the Wong Takes start now. Yellow 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 everybody. It is Thursday, October thirty first, twenty nineteen. Happy Halloween to everybody. I hope you have you plan to have fun tonight. I have not dressed up in like seven or eight years. But I'm still more than happy to get into the spirit with all of y'all. Um, anyway, stay safe, have fun. Tis the holiday season uh, coming up shortly. I apologize for this coming out on Thursday instead of Tuesday, but I made an I made an audible to uh, postpone recording this episode until after the World Series because it was ending at an appropriate time and. I, I obviously couldn't tell if it was going to go 6 or 7 uh, and who was going to win, and so I decided to make the decision uh, to postpone it for now, but I have stopped postponing it, as you can tell by the fact that uh, this sound is making its way through your device to your eardrums, so we've got a good show today, uh, mostly focusing on college football and the end of the baseball season. I'll talk a little bit about the Niners, um, but not too much. Also, the Warriors are stinking up the joint. But, um, you know, that's just the way it is sometimes. Anyway, let's get to it. College football week nine. Really good slate of games last week. We've got a little bit of a a pause this upcoming week. Not too many big games, except for uh, Georgia and Florida uh, basically determining where if one team gets knocked down, one moves into the top five. But last week was good, starting out with the big noon game, Ohio State and Wisconsin. Pretty big matchup because Wisconsin, with one loss on the year, uh, coming to Illinois last week, looking to rebound uh, in this humongous matchup to determine more or less, uh, not Big Ten supremacy, but Wisconsin's playoff hopes at least. And they responded by getting blown out. A dominant Ohio State win. This is one of the most dominant Ohio State teams we've seen in a long time. Going up against one of the top teams in the country and really destroying them from start to finish. A couple things jump out at me. Uh, of course, the offense, but Chase Young on the defensive end. I mean, he's getting a lot of run this week as a potential Heisman candidate, and he deserves it, quite frankly. Uh, if you watched him in that game, not only do the stats show, I mean, four sacks, five tackles for loss, and two forced fumbles, but his ability to be disruptive in the backfield consistently is, is an underrated aspect of, of lineman of d lineman because it doesn't show up on the stat sheet. Um, but the matter of the fact is, that consistent ability is treasured not only f- for college football, but at the next level as well. We've seen a lot of players have success at the next level with that attribute, and I think he'll continue to show off. And if he is able to put up performances like this, he'll he will be in the Heisman running. I think Ohio State. I mean, this is a this is a complete team if we've seen one this year. Uh, out of all the teams that are leading the pack, this seems like the most complete team uh, right now. Obviously, on the defensive end, I've talked about them. But if you look at the rushing attack with J.K. Dobbins, over 200 rushing yards, um, and I think two or three teddies and Justin Fields, the transfer from Georgia, putting up big numbers as well. In addition to his legs, he is a he is a true running quarterback as well. Plus, special teams had some big returns. Um, did a great job in coverage. So this looks like right now, as it stands, a uh, complete team over there in Columbus. And I would not be surprised to see them uh, run the table. Even though obviously it'll be tough with their upcoming matchups, um, including. Penn State and Michigan but given the way that they stepped up to the challenge here um, and absolutely rolled uh, against still uh, at the time a top 15 team uh, I would not be surprised to see them continue this streak and possibly run the table all the way to the college football playoff Uh, but I think the biggest question right now as far as uh, what are we concerned about uh, with this Buckeye team is Justin Fields' health. Um, Because, as we saw, they don't have much strength um, as far as their second-string quarterback. And so, if Justin Fields can stay on the field and he can keep putting up performances like this and be at his best, um, I think this is a team that is borderline unstoppable. But, obviously you can't determine that. I think they'll have to win, I think in order to get to the playoff, I talked about how I wouldn't be surprised if I saw them get there, um, but this team might have to win out. The, the top is so strong at this point, and we could see a potential, what I like to call quarterfinal game in the Big Ten Championship, just because of how strong some of the teams in this conference are. I call it a quarterfinal because it's like the, champion, the conference championship game determines a spot in the college football playoff, so in a way it's a quarterfinal game. And we might see one of those this year in the Big Ten uh, because of Ohio State and Penn State and how good teams those are. And the loser of that game on November 23rd will end up with one of the best quality losses you could have. So that's, I think, the state of Ohio State and the Big Ten right now as it stands Uh, The afternoon game, the SEC afternoon game, Auburn and LSU, number two Auburn taking on number nine LSU, or uh, then number two LSU taking on then number nine Auburn. This game was very close, Uh, 23-20, to LSU ended up coming out with the victory in Death Valley. And Auburn, just as it's felt like the last few years, they are just so close to being in that top tier contender level. Um, but not quite. And there's always an aspect of their team that seems to be struggling, or seems to be the not. I don't. I, I hesitate to say weak link, just because it's not necessarily weak. It's just that it's weaker than the other elements, and and it's not as elite as the other elements. And in this case, it's the quarterback position. I mean, Bo Nix. He's a good quarterback. He has a bright future. He's just a freshman. But in this game, and in prior games, he's flat out just not been accurate enough. Like, if he completes 50% of his passes in this game, uh, they probably win. Uh, He went 15 for 35, and I think it's so tough to contend in college football uh, on a consistent basis, and Auburn has always been just on that pinnacle. And you start to think, uh, at at what point does it require a change? At what point are, are, I mean, the calls for Gus Malzahn's departure have always been there, and they will continue to be there. But at what point will they escalate to the point where you know the Tigers board might actually have to do something about it? Uh, on the LSU side, this was another gut check for them. They've had some close calls so far against really high, uh, against real quality teams. But it looks like they will preserve a perfect record heading into their matchup in two weeks against Alabama. They will because they have a bye this week. That is starting to look like the game of the century again after they had their own game of the century, I think, what was it, seven years ago? But LSU is now number one in the country, taking over, even though it's really close. And Alabama sits at number two, assuming they get a win. I think they have a cupcake game this week. And so looking at these two teams, they are both elite on defense and they're both elite on offense, assuming Tua can come back. And this game is really going to be probably the best game we'll see all year. Um, just with the matchup of styles, and it's going to be flashy, it's going to be fun. Um, and I think everyone is looking for... Oh No, Alabama has a bye this week as well. So both these teams will have a bye, and they're going to have perfect records heading into their matchup in Tuscaloosa. Right now, Alabama's favored by seven according to Las Vegas. But we will be all over that game. Don't worry about it. Although I wish they would move it to the night. <laughs> and the nightcap. In uh, a little bit of a surprise, uh, Michigan bulldozed Notre Dame in, in uh, Ann Arbor, 45-14. to And for the Wolverines, they have had a really good game and a half. The second half against Penn State when they came back from the deficit and almost tied it up, barring a late drop. And then now this game coming out and just stomping Notre Dame, punching them in the mouth. Everyone is playing until they get punched in the mouth and never looking back. In this case, I think this game was a little bit of actually an anomaly uh, for the Wolverines because really the conditions made for a perfect situation for them because when it's rainy, it's damp. Uh, both teams had to kind of rely on their ground game for offense, which favored Michigan more so than Notre Dame, and you could really see that in, at the start of the game when Michigan was just running it down their throats and Notre Dame uh, couldn't get much of anything done, and that put them in an early hole to the point that once they started to make some noise, and even then they didn't really start to make some noise at all uh, in this game, but it was just too much too late. Askins and Charbonnet combined for 223 rushing yards and they had a drive in the first half that was all touchdowns. Or, I'm mean, sorry, all runs. And it was a touchdown drive. And that, I think, just exemplifies what Michigan's game plan was and how well they executed. And, I mean, also in, in, in the sloppy conditions, the defense had a field day. Uh, so, I think this game was a little bit anomalous for Michigan. I don't think this is the Michigan team that we'd see on a more neutral field. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's what... They, they had a game plan. They came out and executed it, and that's all you can do. And Michigan, I think, they've still got stuff to play for. I mean, if, if they can beat Ohio State in the big house, they've got a shot to, to really make some noise here, and they've got quality opportunities to get wins. And so I think even though they have two losses... Michigan still has something to play for. I mean, they're 14th in the country. There's been some losses up ahead. And I think they've really got an opportunity to, to have some fun here. Meanwhile, for the Irish, their playoff hopes are done. This was really the last uh, quality opponent that they were going to see this year. And I've said it before, but the downside of not playing in a conference like the Irish is that even though you kind of you get to have a little more flexibility for the schedule, you get to have more fu- fun with teams that you play, but there's no conference championship game. There's no 13th opportunity to prove yourself in a season that's so short. Um, and it's, it's, in, in a season like this, it's crucial to demonstrate your value in big games. And if you can't do that every big game, you're not going to have a chance to play in the championship. And I, that's what Notre Dame's run into with these two losses. Even though they're both quality losses, losing to Georgia just barely and now losing to Michigan by a lot they're not going to have another chance to prove themselves. And I don't know if Notre Dame's eventually going to move into a conference. Uh, I think they still seem to like their situation here, where they get, you know, exclusive deal with NBC to air all their games and things like that. But that that that's just the way it is uh, for the Irish. And unfortunately, these teams don't play again until 2033-34, which is kind of disappointing because, you know, you have the proximity of these two teams. I mean, Ann Arbor and South Bend are pretty close, and I have a friend that it was Notre Dame that went to this game Um, and so this rivalry is a lot of fun and it's unfortunate I think that they don't play again for the 15 years but well what can you do it's sports it's the amateur model Um, also for the third straight week a title contender went down Oklahoma uh, who was cruising with Jalen Hurts beating Texas beating everyone in the path fell to Kansas State of all teams scrappy Big 12 chaos Uh, So, you know, I think they've still got a chance uh, to win the title. They've got to win out, obviously. Um, But this was a significant worry for the Sooners uh, and for their fans as well. The NFL Week 8. Let's just go over the Niners this week. Local Oh, yeah, local hour for college football is depressing. I'm not going to do it. The Bears just got absolutely dismantled by Utah. The Niners, who played tonight... Thursday night on Thursday night football uh, had an absolute dismantling of the Cam Newton-less still Carolina Panthers who had been four and uh since his departure are now four and one. The Niners defense, man, that line is so talented. Uh, in particular, Nick Bosa had a had a rookie had a career tube date game with sacks, uh, an interception, which was just awesome to watch. And he is a real, like I said, Chase Young is a disruptor. Nick Bosa is a real disruptor. And that defense right now looks like the best of the league. And that defense, I've said it before, I'll say it again, defense travels. Um, and this team is looking to travel. They're 4-0 on the road. They're 7-0 in total. So uh, they go on the road tonight against Arizona and Glendale. The offense, meanwhile, did their part, and Jimmy Garoppolo had another performance that makes you say, again, uh, if Jimmy Garoppolo was playing to the hype level of two years ago, I think this team um, would be best in the league, even better than the Patriots. Um, And he's not playing poorly, but he's playing about as well as he needs to for them to win. And that's really all you ask for in a quarterback. You don't ask for the flashy numbers. You don't ask for the gaudy stats. You ask to win, and that's what he's doing. He's being pretty conservative, not making too many throws into tight coverages, um, just doing what he needs to do to win. And I think that's a formula for success uh, for this 49er team. Now, they're really getting into a gauntlet uh, of sorts here with their schedule. The divisional matchups are really starting to ramp up. Because up to this point, they've only had one divisional matchup, which was uh, in Los Angeles. But they've got nine games left, and they've got five of those inside the division. And so I'm, and that starts tonight in Arizona. I'm really excited in particular to see the Niners-Seahawks matchups, because the Seahawks are looking surprisingly good. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if those are, are two playoff contenders uh, fighting for a divisional crown. Um, and it'll make it'll be a really exciting to see a revival of that rivalry because when it was at its peak in twelve thirteen, I hated the Seahawks even more than I hated the Dodgers, which was pretty anomalous and pretty rare um, but that just goes to show the intensity of what that rivalry really was um, and i i like to, I'd like to see it come back. Um, just because it's—it's always fun to have a team to root against. Um, you can only root for your own team for so long, and—and <laughs> um, and it's always—and—and and it always adds a little extra spice to the relationship. Let's wrap the World Series and the baseball calendar. What a series this was! The Nationals won Game Seven last night, six to two. And this was a series that was unlike any other. I mean, the road team won all seven games, um, which is pretty crazy. We had great starting pitching matchups throughout, and we had a winner-take-all Game 7. I mean, what more could you ask for? Best two words in sports. I think it's really something that we take for granted a little bit, the drama of Game 7. Because it's one team goes home, one team wins it all, uh, particularly in a series like this. And what a team that the Nationals were. I mean, they they stayed in the fight. That was their motto. And it it, said, it got said millions of times. But they started 19-31. They came back, got the wild card, got the first wild card, faced five elimination games, one against uh, the Brewers in the wild card game, two against L.A., and then two here against Houston. And they won all five. And... I don't know if anyone really—it's weird because this is one of the team. This is one of the teams that I don't know if anyone really thought was for real, for a long time. I mean, they had pieces. They had Rendon. They had Soto. But I don't know if t- people thought that they were legitimate championship contenders, and including myself, um, until they went out and beat the Dodgers, because it didn't look like they—they they had those those stars, particularly uh, on, on the hitting side. Uh, Obviously, you have Scherzer and uh, Corbin and uh, Strasburg, and you you can compete pitching-wise, but I don't know if we thought they had the pop uh, to really make some noise in the playoffs. And obviously, the baseball playoffs are the randomest of all the playoffs. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. But that being said, um, we didn't know if... And the bullpen, in particular, is one of the worst in baseball in regular season. And so I don't know if... They didn't seem like they had the formula, you know, to to go deep in the playoffs. But ultimately... um, their relief pitching came through and the starting pitching carried the day. I think uh, out of the World Series I've seen, this was one of the World Series that relied heavily, most heavily on starting pitching. I mean, in, in the playoffs in particular, in the World Series, you're not used to seeing starting pitchers go, you know, five, six innings. Once they give up a run or two and they're up to like 50 pitches in a stressful situation, you, you yank them because, because in a game seven in particular, because you want to bring your specialists in and get guys out right away. And in this game, we saw the Nationals only have three pitchers the entire game. Uh, uh, Scherzer to Corbin to um, Hudson. And I think that goes to show the the strength of the Nationals really shown through in this playoff run, which was starting pitching. Um, Also, getting contributions from unlikely players, Howie Kendrick, uh, was one of them who hit the grand slam and also the go-ahead home run in Game Seven, and also like Ryan Zimmerman, uh, who's been in the league for fifteen years, was a as frequently repeated the first the first draft pick of the Washington Nationals when they re- moved to to uh, D.C. in two thousand five, and they've got they had the youth as well, Juan Soto, um, and Anthony Rendon's not a young, but he's still a little younger. I uh, think guys like Zimmerman and Kendrick. And it's the oldest team in the league, but they, showed youth, they they acted youthful, right? And I think that's a winning combination because when you have the experience of veterans who've been in these types of situations before know what it's like to perform in these types of situations, and then you've got the young, youthful guys to kind of keep everyone on their toes, keep everyone excited, keep everyone happy. That makes for a good combination, and that's what the Nationals had uh, this year. I think this team will go down as one of the more interesting World Series champions of the last decade. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the scrappy giants in the early part of this decade, the never-say-die teams, the uh, always staving off elimination, always being counted out and proving the haters wrong. Even after they swept the Cardinals, I don't know how many people expected them to actually defeat this juggernaut of a Houston side. And they did in seven games, including winning all four games in Houston. And I think that's pretty remarkable uh, in and of itself. Now, on the flip side of this coin, the Astros, who have won 100 games three straight years in a remarkable turnaround from the start of the decade, now have lost or not won the World Series for two straight years. And windows in baseball are so small, right? Uh, Guys move things change, baseball is such a random sport, that you don't expect championship windows to last forever and three years with this sustained level of success is already pretty remarkable. But now you see Garrett Cole already acting kind of standoffish with the Astros organization. Um, Guys starting to think about moving on, deals coming up. And you think maybe this is the end to the Astros run. And if it is, you know, um, it was remarkable. I mean, I if they won, I was prepared to call this—I mean, I'm a, I'm a Giants fan. The Giants won the World Series, but I was prepared to call this Astros team the team of the decade because it wasn't fluky. It, it, it was a complete team with pitching, hitting, defense. Um, and they won 100 games every year, and they made deep runs in the playoffs every year. And this looked like one of the most talented teams we've seen in recent memory. And I was prepared to, to call them the team of the decade, but they lost the World Series. And so I can't. But uh, this was still a remarkable run from Houston, and this core of young stars um, that will probably continue to be on the Astros for another couple of years. But even if they move on, I mean, this will be. This is the hub of some of the best young talent in the game, and these couple of seasons will always be remembered um, in that fashion. Quick take on a couple of things to say about... I'm going a little... I'm not going off an article this time. Uh, Just on the NCAA ruling to um, allow players to profit off name, image, and likeness. First of all, I called it... um, I mean, many people called it. I mean, this was probably the most common sense solution, right? Salarying players was always going to be tough, because what about the sports that don't draw in revenue? Um, as much. And this isn't a perfect solution by any means, but it's the most straightforward, easiest to apply, most. Um, even if it's not totally fair, it's a step in the right direction. And it'll appease a lot of the arguments against the NCAA at this point, including the ones that are saying they're breaking the law, um, quite frankly. But allowing players to profit off of jersey sales, allowing them to profit off of video games with their likeness in it is very clearly the best way the NCAA can go about this, and it's amazing how quickly they caved after California passed the bill saying, NCAA, you got to do this. But it's an example, I think, and we don't see a lot of them nowadays, and too much of our modern narrative is drawn from the cycle of outrage, but, you know, government doing something good, government forcing private business to do the right thing, uh, is not something you see super often, and yet it happened here. Um, The NCAA had its hand forced, and it And it it caved. It blinked. And it's going to be good if, you know, this is not going to happen right away. There's going to be a lot of kinks to be ironed out. There's going to be issues that come up. But I think, ultimately, with the long-term goal of players getting to profit off of their own likenesses and reducing back channels uh, of means of getting money and making this less of an issue when it, Really is kind of one sided at this point, is the right way to go. And I think it's a good solution um, that the NCAA will get to work with uh, over the next few years. And it's a start toward breaking down the injustice that happens a lot of times, in particular in football and basketball with college athletics. Thanks much for listening to the podcast. Bit.ly slash the long takes. Check it out there. And email the long at gmail.com with voicemails. And questions, rate and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, check out my other podcast, Unranked and Unfiltered, available on Spotify, Apple Music, or Apple Podcasts, and Google Play at bit.lyslash slash Pod. Uh, it's very fun. A lot of interesting topics we cover there. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for listening. That's enough plugging for the end of the show, and I will see you next week.